Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be jumping in with you this week. Um, other than a couple weeks ago with the uh, outlier episode, as I'm now calling it, um, we crossed the 3,000 plays threshold, uh, not counting that episode. Um, so I just wanted to take another opportunity to thank you all for your patronage and remind you how much I enjoy doing this. And I'm glad that people are finding it worthwhile. So I'm glad you're back for this week. I'm glad to be back. Uh, unfortunately, we did get a... Uh, <laughs> The Gospel Project gave us a pretty complicated set of chapters this week, so they're uh, they're bringing the challenge, but we will not be frightened, we will not be dismayed, we will jump into it, and we're going to do the absolute best that we can. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, we're going to be in chapter 22, and in chapter 48, we will go through them one at a time, don't worry. Um, but we are going to be looking at uh, how the prophet Isaiah is talking to the people of Judah, Isaiah primarily, uh, he had his ministry in the nation of Judah. So we're going to see how he condemns them for how they acted during times of turmoil and that he warns them that judgment is coming because of their stubbornness. But we're also going to see how he gives them a fresh hope for redemption. And I think, I think we're going to see some of our own tendencies here in this passage as well. I think we're going to see ourselves in the stubbornness and some of the things that we see from the people of Judah. But we will go ahead and jump in now uh, in Isaiah chapter 22, starting in verse 5. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver and with chariots and horsemen. And Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Okay, so before we jump into the text itself, first question that arises in this chapter is whether or not the day that is being referred to here is one that has already passed and that Isaiah is reflecting on, or if he's talking about one that is coming specifically thinking about the uh, Babylonian uh, conquering of Jerusalem in 586 and the subsequent exile of the people to Babylon. Um, so there are some future tense translations here. There are some past tense translations, some things that had happened to them, some things that don't maybe quite make sense for the events that had happened to them. Uh, so the, the past event this could be referring to, or the more contemporary event, could be the uh, surrounding of Jerusalem by the army of Assyria. Uh, it was around 701, is what I read in the commentary by Dr. Gary Smith. Um, and in, the, in that instance, if you remember from, we haven't gone over it in Bible Breakdown, but if you've ever read it before, uh, the angel of the Lord comes and delivers them from this huge force uh, that had surrounded them. Uh, but it, again, it could also be more prophetic about future prophecy, Um about the coming Babylonian invasion in the years before and ending in 586. And I say future prophecy. I don't mean that to be redundant. Biblically speaking, when we talk about like the books of prophecy, they aren't always future happenings, right? Because a lot of the parts of the, the major prophets, the minor prophets, it's a judgment for things Israel has already done, Judah has already done. So that's why I say future prophecy, uh, because some of the things that we classify kind of from a, I'm um, just trying to put, biblical books in certain categories, the way we categorize prophecy doesn't always mean future. So that's why I say that. There's just a little side note. 
Anyway, not super certain about which uh, which time period this is referring to, past or future, but it doesn't, we don't have to know for sure. We don't have to be super certain to understand the implications of it, okay? So the message is the same. It could be referring to both in some ways. There's We've talked about, definitely talked about before in the Bible breakdown, this concept of already but not yet, things that uh, already exist but are also not fully realized. For example, for those of us who have believed in Jesus, we are uh, redeemed in Christ through his work on the cross, but also we look forward to a future redemption, right? We're not completely redeemed, even though we have been declared righteous by God, but we look forward to a future where not only are we redeemed in Christ, but also we're fully brought back to this state of full relationship with God and uh, no longer uh, tempted by the sin that exists uh, in our flesh. So this could be one of those situations in which Isaiah is kind of like talking about something in the past, but also looking forward to something in the future. Anyways, again, not going to land with certainty on things that are debated. That is a policy that we adhere to. But those are kind of the two main options. So you can kind of carry those um, with you in the back of your mind, or you can forget them because like I said, it's not too important. So if that was stressful to hear me explain all that, then stress not. We shall move on and I think things will become a little more clear. Whatever the time period, though, this is talking about a time when Jerusalem, of course, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, divided kingdom period, is in trouble. Jerusalem is in trouble. We've got battering walls. We've got shouting. We've got chariots. We've got horsemen. We've got taking away the covering of Judah. So let's see in these circumstances what God's people put their hope in. Moving down to the second half of verse eight. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Okay, so what is happening in face of danger. The people of Jerusalem are making a bunch of preparations for danger, which is not a bad thing, right? In, I'm sure you have many uh, backups. I was just talking to uh, my mom yesterday about how when I locked myself out of the house one time and after that, I hit a key, right? That is a preparation in case of danger, right? Not a bad thing, but here is the problem. They had a looking problem. You may have noticed that at the beginning and at the end, we see this verb look. So at the beginning, it says in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. And then it says those other things. And then the last sentence there, but you did not look to him who did it. All right. So the word look here in this paragraph, it kind of has this connotation of looking to with confidence. Okay. For example, uh, everyone looked to the boss when they found out the company was in trouble. So it's not just that they like physically set their eyes on a person, but they're kind of looking to like, what are we going to do, right? And that's kind of the connotation that is in this passage as well. They looked to their preparations as their confidence. That was what they were looking to in confidence. They said, ooh, we're in trouble, but let's look at these weapons. Let's look at ways that we can uh, cover the breaches. And oh, look, thank goodness, we've got a plan in place. Look, we've got water. Okay, we're set. Again, not bad, but they had a looking problem. They did not look to him who did it, 
the one who actually took care of, of them, which of course would be God. They were focused on their own strength, not seeking the Lord. This wasn't primarily a military problem, right? Pretty much no problem in the history of Israel or Judah is primarily a military problem. It is always a trusting, obeying God problem, right? Because in the times when they are adhering to God's law, when they are pursuing God, when they are not worshiping idols, God takes care of them and it's all good to go. Really, these things start to happen as God promised, and we're going to actually talk about that some too, when they're not looking to God, they're worshiping idols. But regardless of the problem, the solution for them is to look to God, whether it's a specific military problem or whether it's just their normal everyday Tuesday afternoon, right? That's what their solution should be, looking to God. Um, The good thing is, I guess, that we never struggle this way, right? We never try to control our lives instead of submitting them, right? Nah, we never do that. Of course we do. We'll talk about that toward the end. So God called the people in the midst of this to repent, but here's how they reacted instead. Verse 12, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, quote, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So instead of viewing the coming judgment as a time to repent and seek God, as he was calling them to, the people just leaned into the fact that things were were bad or they are going to lean into the fact that things are bad again. Past event, maybe a future event, maybe, maybe it doesn't really matter which. But the idea is in the face of this danger, the people's reaction is, ah, I guess we're going to be destroyed anyways, might as well party. So God says, if you repent, then there will be deliverance. And they say, ah, no, I guess we're okay with this. Uh, and of course, too, uh, part of the commentary I read, again, by Dr. Smith, mentioned that if you were in the middle of a siege, you wouldn't um, kill oxen or sheep. These are animals until like the very last, because these are uh, animals that can provide you with other things other than meat, right? So it's kind of just a, yeah, it's it fits perfectly with that quote at the end of verse 13, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, that they just decided um, they're just going to enjoy themselves and not, and not worry about um, what God is calling them to. So the call is to repent. And he said he would deliver them. And that is just the way that God is. And that's how he always was. The period of the judges is literally this formula on repeat, right? The people disobey. Um, they face some sort of difficulty from another nation. They, people call it to God. God sent someone to deliver. And then they would worship God. And then they stop worshiping God again. But that's God, always God's call to the people of Israel is if they repent that he would deliver them. And they just decide to keep going their own way. And this is part of the reason for God's discipline, right? This is why God's judgment and discipline comes on the people of Israel, which had happened during uh, Isaiah's ministry, 722, which would have been kind of smack dab in the middle of his ministry in Jerusalem. And it's eventually going to happen to the people of Judah in uh, 586. So we can also tend to go this way too, right? We don't maybe like how discipline feels, so we just kind of stubbornly continue in something we know isn't good for us. Right, We experience the consequences of our actions, but we don't want to repent. We don't want to submit ourselves to another. We don't want to humble ourselves, so we just kind of keep going stubbornly, continuing in something we know isn't good for us. We do that too, right? 
All right, we'll talk about that more at the end too. But for now, we are going to make that leap ahead. We are going to jump over to Isaiah chapter 48 to continue our discussion on this lesson again. Gospel Project's given us an opportunity to kind of flex our muscles a little bit and cover a large part of Isaiah. I was just talking to my wife, Caitlin, about the book of Isaiah. I was like, yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to wade through um, when you're talking about books of prophecy. I mean, even the issue we talked about, are they talking about something that already happened, something that's going to happen? There's a lot to do. Gospel Project has handed us a challenge, but we will not back down from this challenge. So into chapter 48, this chapter is kind of talking about Israel's refining through discipline. So it's, um, of course, highly related to what we were reading in chapter 22. And God proclaims that this is something that they should have always known. In verse 3 of chapter 48, and go into verse 5, this is what it says. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass, because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old, before they came to pass I announced them to you, lest you should say my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. So I think what God is telling the people here is you should have expected this discipline in the face of disobedience. This is something that I have told you from for all times. I declared it from a long time ago that when there's disobedience, there will be judgment and there will be discipline. This is how God responds to rebellion. A major place in scripture where we see this laid out really clearly is in Deuteronomy. And the uh, chapter of Deuteronomy that that is, is chapter 30. And we get this really clear expectation for the people that this is what is going to happen. This, these are the choices that you have. So Deuteronomy 30, starting in chapter 15, says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land, and you are going uh, that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Okay, so that's kind of the standard that God has set up. And we kind of will uh, sometimes summarize this as blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now, we'll also talk about this at the end. That is not that is not the covenant that we live under. Remember, this is the old covenant. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. So they have heard the law again. And then this is kind of one of the concluding statements of Moses' address that God has given to him through Moses. So the standard for the law, the standard to as it says, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his rules. That's what it says there. The standard for the law wasn't perfection, but to pursue God only, which included the laws and the statutes he had were when there's sin, that there's repentance and there's atonement in sin, right? So it's not an expectation that people never do anything wrong. Rather, it is an expectation that in the face of doing something wrong, that the people will Follow God's prescription for how to 
repent and atone for that sin. So he's not setting up, setting them up for uh, a life of perfection and if they stumble once that there's judgment, but rather it's that they are to pursue God only. The problem is if they worship other gods and serve them, that's what it says there in verse 17. So God tells them, in uh, Isaiah, God's telling them, uh, I had to tell you this. I had to tell you that this discipline was coming. And I told you forever ago, I had to tell you this so you wouldn't think some idol is responsible for this or the things going on with you or that some idol is now greater than the God of Israel. But instead, this is a part of a refining, right? So that is what God is saying. And I think that's what God is talking about when he said, I had, to, I told you this of old. I declared these things a long time ago. So that is what he told him. The, the things that are happening to you are predictable, right? And then in verse six, he kind of changes, kind of changes the tune a little bit. Back in Isaiah chapter 48, starting in verse six, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God tells them, this is new information that you are getting. Are you ready? Don't pretend that you already knew it. You did not already know it. And he's basically telling them, I'm going to have mercy, even though you have not repented. Verse 8, it says, you've never heard, you've never known, for I knew you would surely deal treacherously. I think that he's saying, I, I didn't tell you about this before because I knew you'd try to take advantage of my mercy. And that's not what I want you to live in. Kind of uh, what we may talk about um, with uh, God's grace through Jesus that we sometimes we be tempted toward license, which license is the idea that, oh, well, God's already forgiven my sins, so I'm okay. Like, even if I sin, it's not a big deal. I, I think this is like an Old Testament version of like, I knew you, I knew what you guys would be up to if uh, you knew that I was going to have mercy for the sake of my own name. But God is deferring this anger, this righteous anger that he has at his people for their rebellion against him. And he's going to defer it for his glory to show who he is. All of this, this whole situation with Judah, all of our lives are ultimately with the purpose of bringing him glory. And this mercy that he is talking about here in Isaiah 48 is a way that God is showing who he is, which is really what it means for him to show his glory, to show who he is and for us to be like, wow, that's amazing. Because it is amazing. And a lot of times when you hear that God does things for his own glory, we can kind of be rubbed the wrong way by that. But the only reason I think we feel that is because literally every other being other than God has no business bringing glory to itself, right? But God deserves the glory. He's the only one who deserves the glory. So for him to reveal his glory, to reveal who he is, is a kindness. 
from him. For him to glorify himself is also a kindness for us because he is the true God. So for him to make his character known, for us to have an opportunity to look and be like, wow, that's amazing, is a kindness and a mercy toward us. He's opening up the book to show who he is. The God of the universe is revealing who he is to us by glorifying himself. So he gets the praise that he deserves, and we get an opportunity to know more about who the God of the universe is. It's really a win-win, even though our human brains think, no, we're not supposed to be bringing glory to ourselves. We're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to be humble, absolutely, because we're not God. If we reveal too much of our quote-unquote glory, um, we, we will be left with shame, not an opportunity for people to praise us, right? Our glory is only tied up in the work of Jesus. The only glory we have is that we belong to God. And that's because his glory is so great, not because ours is, right? So he does, he defers his anger for his glory. This is merciful. God is showing mercy. It's merciful to the people of Judah. It's merciful to us to know who he is. So in the next section of chapter 48, God is also going to proclaim that he's going to judge Babylon for their sin. So in this portion, we know for sure that he is kind of referring, Isaiah is referring more to the future that he's speaking God's words about the future. Um, and the uh, and actually at the time of Isaiah's uh, prophecy, in many ways, Israel thought Babylon was their uh, friend uh, because they were kind of a rival to Assyria. So it's kind of one of those things that's going to really turn the tables on them. But uh, God tells them uh, that he's going to judge Babylon for their sin, even though they are going to be an instrument of his discipline. And then he also says, This wouldn't have all been necessary if they just followed his commandments the first time and not turned to idols. Of course, he knew that it would happen this way, but he's just like, just so you know, this was was avoidable, theoretically. Of course, he knows the future. So then down to verses 20 and 21 to round out this chapter, it says, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. So as he, he now he's not even just prophesying about what's going to happen from Babylon taking exiles. He's going even farther ahead to the return from exile. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. And this is going to be, I mean, the capture of Jerusalem is going to be over 100 years after Isaiah's ministry, and then the exile is about 70 years after that. But the mercy and turning aside of anger will take place. The people will return to the land. God commands them to rejoice in him and proclaim it. And then he likens this scenario of them being brought out from Babylon back to the land. He likens it to when he made water come from a rock where there was a desert he brought water and sustenance and this like they will have be in a spiritual desert because of their sin being taken captive by another nation that he is going to make water come from the rock that there is going to be sustenance that there is going to be relief for the people and that's what he proclaims so as we seek to then apply some of this passage to look at some of the things here and think about how it applies to our own life, right? Because we don't want to be hearers of the word only, but also doers first. 
we need to recognize that we too, like the people at the very beginning back in chapter 22, we tend to try to control our circumstances and put our hope in our ability to control our circumstances, right? So whether it's how we navigate uh, interpersonal relationships, I'm a people pleaser, so people won't be mad at me. And then that keeps me from feeling the negative feelings. I'm going to keep control on that. I really should say something to this person, but I don't know. That would make them upset. So I was trying to control that. Other end, I use my loud voice to dominate others so that I don't have to hear criticism or no one can reproach me. That way I don't have to feel the insecurities that I feel deep inside, right? And we try to control our circumstances interpersonally. Maybe sometimes we control our circumstances uh, in money, maybe we find our, our our peace and our rest whenever the bank account has the, the target number in it. And if it dips below the target number, then we feel way out of control. And then it's panic time, right? But if that number is what we want it to be, then okay, then we're good. And our hope is ultimately then, and how, how well am I holding to the number that I'm looking for in my bank account? Right? We have a tendency to try to control our circumstances instead of submitting them to God. On the other end, sometimes, um, instead of trying to highly control, um, we just kind of are willing to live it up. And in, even in times when we know that there's things we should do, maybe we're, God's calling us to repent in the face of our, our sin, our rebellion, um, we just say, no, I'm just going to continue my own way. I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to worry about what I should be doing or what God's calling me to be doing. I'm doing this right now. And in both ways, whether we're trying to really control our circumstances or whether we're just kind of letting loose and letting everything go, ultimately we're failing to submit to God. We're failing to submit our hearts fully to him, to find our rest fully in him, not in the things that we have controlled the way we wanted or the things that we've taken license with but to ultimately find our joy in submitting to God, to being uh, content, Ooh, to being content in God and not in the things that we have, the things we are doing, the things we are experiencing, to be actually content in who God is and what he's doing, not only around us, but also in us and recognizing that times when things are kind of out of the control, when that number in the bank account isn't, what we wanted it to, to recognize that God is working, sometimes especially through those times when we feel most out of control to show us who he is, right? That's often how we find ourselves working. So we, like the people of Judah, find ourselves in a, a tendency to either try to control or sometimes to ignore. Another thing that I think we see from this passage is that when we submit to God, we bring him glory. We bring him glory. So in the midst of our control or our uh, ignorance of what God's calling us to, we are not submitting to God. And what we're choosing is a it's a missed opportunity to bring him glory. When we submit to God, when we submit our feelings of control to God, when we uh, commit ourselves to do the things that God has called us to, even when our sin nature is t uh, trending a different way, wanting us to do a different way. When we submit to God in the midst of those things, we bring him glory because it's a statement of, God, I know that your way is best. So that brings him glory by giving him the place in our lives he deserves, by giving him the authority in our lives that allows him to work 
in ways, unlike in our stubbornness, where God works despite us, we can partner with God and how he's working through our circumstances. And when other people see us not, not just out of control, uh, anxiety, because we can't control things, when people see us holding to God's standard, even when other people would ho- tell us to hold to a more worldly standard, when we submit to God in the midst of those things, we, we show others that he's worth it. That's a way that we can bring him glory by showing other people that he's worth it, even when the world around us would say we should do something differently. And I think, too, that this whole passage, as we think about even what we read in Deuteronomy, where God had graciously given this law, that there were standards that the people were meant to meet, but there were also, of course, methods of atoning for sin and calls to repentance in that, not an expectation of perfection that as gracious and kind as God was to give the law to the people to make this way for them to worship and access him, it just gives us an opportunity to look back and say, wow, we have been given so much in Christ to know that we just grace abounds on us, even though we daily are turning away from God, that because of Jesus completed work on the cross, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection and through faith in him, receiving the Holy Spirit who's guiding us toward and is our seal that we belong to God, guiding us to more obedience. We have so much opportunity to give God praise for what he's doing in our lives, for how he has treated us. And so as we look back on this time, I hope it's a time for us to think through our behaviors and our actions and more closely align them to God's expectations for us and also a time to thank him again and again for the grace that he gives over and over.